0: You're listening to Firm Up, the fermented food podcast, where we get together every week to discuss anything and everything fermented. This is episode 43, and I'm Brandon.
1: And I'm Allison.
0: And we've got some fermentation talk for you today. But first, I did want to tell you that uh, I've been... I have some fermented green beans that my son is loving right now. Uh he's he's had some other fermented foods but he's really liking uh fermented green beans or or dilly beans. Have you ever had those?
1: I have. I actually made some this past summer. They're really tasty, but it's kind of one of those um I don't want to say an acquired taste, but it's something that I didn't like when I was younger.
0: Well, he's had, well, when he was really young, he had like for uh f- like he had some kimchi flavored rice and different things like that. So he's always been okay with it kind of, but he's been a little pickier lately as he's Older than one now and and uh so he's he he just he wanted the green beans he wanted to grab at them right away, and so uh yeah, I mean, he's been eating a lot of foods for many months because he started getting his teeth at three months, so he's kind of a ahead in in eating solids, I think than I think is generally normal, so he's got his full set of teeth and is just ready like wants to chomp on anything and and the dilly beans are definitely one of those things, but you had to acquire a taste for it. You don't, you don't like kimchi either. I mean, you just have like, what you just weird when it comes to fermented foods, but you force yourself to eat them anyway.
1: No, I don't force myself to eat them. I love them. I, I just love, I think the fermented part for me that I like is the sourness of it. I I love, but I don't like sour beers. I don't know. I'm just one of those people that's very particular, I guess.
0: Yeah. That's just uh, but well, what is it about the green beans? I mean, green, like I I don't necessarily, I don't like overcooked green beans. I like just, you know, nice bright green still before they're, they turn dull and blah. Um, but like, I don't think that dilly beans have that texture at all, or, or they, they stay nice and crisp, especially with some garlic and dill in them. They, I think, honestly, I I like them better than just regular pickles because well, for one, they're easier to make. I find and the texture stays crispy, mm-hmm. much easier than regular pickles. See, what is it that I you don't like? like?
1: I don't, I mean, I, I like the fermented green beans um, that I made this summer because they are really crisp and, um, but they're still kind of soft on the the texture is not as it's, it's a little softer than, um, um, you know, fresh green beans. So that's kind of an interesting texture flavor for me, but it's also, I really like, but I also grew up with, in a house where the green beans were completely cooked, just like mushy, not like. Um, when you would buy green beans from a can, you know how, um, those are really mushy. And if you put them in a saucepan, um, and heat them up, they kind of dissolve and just become green mush. Um, but I really, I grew up on something like that. Yeah. That's how my parents cooked them. And so that's just an acquired taste for me. And that's kind of what I think of green beans should taste like. It's more of a, I guess, a cultural thing. It's just a way that we grew up. So. But I like fermented green beans because they still then have that sourness to them. And I mean, I love pickles, um, probably a little more than fermented green beans. um, But I really like the pickles just because of the same thing. Like the outside is like the skin part is still pretty crisp, but the inside is very soft Um, and it has those sour notes and um, kind of like that vinegar flavoring. Um, And that's what I love about it. I don't know. But see, with kimchi, I don't really think that that really has that much of that vinegar taste. And I think that to me is really the driving point for fermented foods that I just love that vinegar sourness.
0: Well, so let your, let your kimchi ferment longer than, than most people do. You know, you could, you could get that sourness. I've had some really sour kimchi. Uh, Generally, I think the recommendation is to cook with kimchi at that point because it's not as edible fresh, but I still like it, but it does get very, very tart and sour. Uh, if I leave it long enough,
1: yeah, I think it's great i mean my my mother in law makes these um kind of fermented beans use all different kinds of beans like navy beans and um, I think she has green beans in there too um but it's more of a it's i guess it's not really a fermentation. she adds vinegar to them and they they're more like pickled um beans, but that I love i mean that's slightly different than fermentation or it's completely different than fermentation, but that whole sourness and Um, that kind of thing. If it can, if it correlates to the fermented foods or the fermented side, I'm all about it.
0: So if you had some green beans that were cooked up until they were just mush and disgusting and gross, and then even if just those were mixed with vinegar, you'd probably like it better than, better than fermented green beans, probably.
1: Maybe, maybe, but I mean, the, again, like the fermented green beans I made this summer and I think, um, I put some dill and some garlic in there. They're pretty tasty. I really like them. It was more of a, some someone had asked me to make them or dared me to make them. And I took their dare and um, it turned out pretty good. I really like the garlic at the bottom of the um, jars though. That is very tasty.
0: Okay. you got, you've got some really daring friends to dare you to make uh, green beans. Uh, oh, I'm assuming yeah. there's probably more to that, but, uh, um, but Hey, I mean, as long as it got you to make them, I mean, maybe that's what we need to start doing is daring the listeners to do different things. Um, and, uh, as we get into this episode a little bit later, I think we might have some dares for people if, if they wanted to take part and, uh, maybe that would motivate people to try things that they haven't tried regarding fermentation.
1: That's true. Yeah. Just,
0: just, uh, just foreshadowing the rest of our episode soon to come. But, uh, even before that though, I had, uh, one other note in my fermentation catalog of stuff that I keep going. I have ginger beer plant that has come back from the dead. I thought I'd pretty much lost it. And I say that because it had started to kind of just disintegrate as can kind of happen. If you're, are you familiar with ginger beer plant? Like not the ginger bug, but ginger beer plant.
1: No, I've never heard of the ginger. I know what ginger beer is, but I've never heard of a ginger beer plant.
0: So ginger beer plant stepping back is similar to water kefir. It's a, it's a SCOBY. So it's a symbiotic colony of uh, bacteria and yeast. It's going to be a, a grain similar to water kefir grains, or, oh,
1: okay.
0: or or, less similar to uh, ke- uh, dairy kefir grains, but they're that little gelatinous kind of thing. But they are a different – it's a different ecosystem than, say, uh, water kefir grains. It, it, they look very similar. I have both, but the the grains are slightly different and maybe we can do more talk on, on ginger beer plant at a, at a later point. But it used to be a pretty common thing for people to make their, their ginger beer that way. The more common way now is to do a ginger beer or ginger bug by fermenting and leaving some sugar in in ginger and then letting that wildly ferment and get some bubbling, catch some yeast, and then start making ginger beer that way. That's kind of the wild way to do it, made popular by uh, Sander Katz in in wild fermentation. And that's generally the way I see it online anymore is, is... people that way but then there's this this movement towards people that are getting the ginger beer plant itself often referred to as just abbreviation of gbp and mm. and they're using it i got it from someone in california who was one of the original people that were able to get it from a place in germany that is a kind of a micro bank of sorts i don't know exactly what all they bank but they do bank different uh my historical microbes or different things like that. So that was one of the last places to, uh, to get it. And uh, he was able to somehow obtain that. And I saw an article about it and I contacted him and he was very nice to send me some, some grains. And I talked about it in a different episode. I don't remember which one, but I had let them go kind of, uh, I neglected them a little bit and they started to disintegrate similar to how water kefir grains can, if left too long in an acidic environment, they just start to in- disintegrate. And, yeah. And, and, and then I left it in the back of the fridge and I was like, do not drink. Like I was going to try again to just strain out whatever was there and try again. But it, I, I forgot about it for, I don't know, four or five, six months. And I just pulled it back out and they were, the, the grains were back for one. Like I, they, they, they weren't as disintegrated as I thought, or they formed back up in that time in that huddle in the cold weather, they all gathered together and, and clumped back up or something. I don't know what happened, but I have the grains again and they're bubbling vigorously. So all it took was one round and they're back.
1: Oh, that didn't seem to be too much of it. I mean, it's kind of sad when you think, oh, this is the, the this is no longer there or anything. And then you have to go back and to your original source and find some more. Um, but I, since I don't really know much about keeper or I'm sorry, ginger beer plant, um, is it but it's very similar to kefir uh, grains that you're talking about are they like made in the same i can't remember if you just mentioned this or not same gelatinous material or is it slightly different and then also is it um one of those things i know that kefir grains you can't make them in your house you have to get them from someone else there's some unknowns as to where they originated, and if there's like an original source, or how they, how you can make them in your house, is it the same way with ginger beer plant?
0: Yeah, ginger beer plant, and well, and again to differentiate, the water kefir grains are more similar to ginger beer plant, whereas uh, dairy kefir grains, the that, those gelatinous globs are are a little different. Again, culturing media, the sugar, sugar water, pretty much versus um, a dairy product, but. The the grains, yes, they were from at at some point, and at, at, different people have discussed at different points. Is gin, uh, is ginger beer plant the same as water kefir grains, or sometimes referred to as tobaccos? uh and the consensus is that they are different. It's different bacteria. I don't have that off the top of my head of which ones they are. They do look different. If a person really looks at them, they grow different and they slightly ferment differently. Like water kefir grains, I find two to three days is about as far as they go before. If I keep doing that continually, where if I go like five days, ferment rounds and then, and then strain them and put more sugar into them or sugar water and, and start the cycle over again. If I go five days, then they start to kind of do that disintegrative kind of thing as well, or at least the water kefir grains that I've had. Um, And, and that's the thing is there's probably some divergence from there's probably people having gotten water kefir grains and maybe the same with ginger beer plant had them from different areas, but from what has been tested, I don't know how accurate these tests are, but the, the tests that have been done on water kefir versus ginger beer plant, that they are different colonies of bacteria and yeast. And there's a couple specific ones in in each that make them stand apart and not only function a little bit different because like say the ginger beer plant, I can go five to seven days most of the time, although I did have them start to disintegrate. But I think that was more from leaving them for a lot longer, like a week and a half or about two weeks or so. So what I still need to look into it more, I would kind of lost a little bit of excitement about it when I started uh, not take being able to take care of them very well. So, now that I have it back, I'm going to try and keep it alive and maybe later on we'll follow up and do a little bit more discussion about uh, all that. So, and and if and if they if I start getting them um functioning well, I'll, I'll send you some so you can you can you can try it too. Make some ginger oh, beer. Oh, that'd
1: be great. Yeah, I love ginger beer. Um, but I've always used it with um it, you know, alcoholic ginger beer.
0: Of course um, you have. Because so- you love the- you're the beer and wine lady.
1: Yeah, so I was. I mean, I I made some with a friend last summer, some alcoholic ginger beer. So, um, I would love to make ginger beer, not the non-alcoholic kind, because I mean, sometimes that's also very tasty on a very hot, hot day.
0: That's just um, something which buff- is
1: not, which is not what I'm understanding and how it is in the rest of the United States right now. It's not hot and warm.
0: <laughs> no, nope, pretty cold here in Wisconsin to say that uh but uh you know you've got you've got a little colder temperature there it's it's I'm, I'm sure it's freezing for you relatively so
1: yeah it's it's relatively cold here i think it's i think this weekend the high was 55 yesterday afternoon but still i mean in san diego that is freezing cold no one goes outside and um everyone starts to um hibernate inside their homes and speaking of which um Speaking of pe- things hibernating, um, my husband and I, we l- have a room in the very back that is the master bedroom. And we found out this past weekend that we have skunks living under our house.
0: Oh, how adorable. Are they yeah,
1: uh... they cute, I guess. Um, they're pretty big. We saw oh. them the other day.
0: <laughs> I was thinking like <laughs> <The> skunk. <laughs> is it a skunk family? Like little ones too? Or are they all big?
1: Oh, I hope there's not a skunk family. That would be awful. Um, I think there's just two of them. Um, we saw two. They're pretty big, actually. I bet they're like 20 pounds each. I mean, I'm not sure if that's like the average of a skunk, but to me, that would be... They're pretty big. Um, but it was just it's just awful. It's been such a nightmare the past few nights because um, even though they're nocturnal and they get up during the at night and they leave the nest... Um, since it's been so cold, I think that they just get up, realize it's cold outside and then just don't leave. And then all they do is just spray their skunk spray all night. It's, it's like hitting a brick wall, (laughs) going into our back into our master bedroom. It's so awful.
0: (laughs) Wow. And, uh, do you think that this is a more recent occurrence or since you just moved into this house recently, do you think that maybe the old owners knew about it and just, you know, made sure that the skunks weren't there?
1: Well, the the old owner, I still talk to her occasionally, and she said that that, that was a problem last winter, um, and she had some people come out, um, some exterminators, and, um, you know, button up the, the bottom of the house. Um, the, a lot of these the old houses in San Diego have a little bit of a crawl or enough space that there's crawl space, but um, sometimes with... Um, erosion and that sort of thing, the, the crawl space becomes really easily acceptable to, um, and it's kind of a skunk. There's a huge skunk problem, um, in North park and possums and all kinds of rodents are here all the time. Um, and she said that she had it all buttoned up because they had some underneath their house last year, but she also told me that skunks are, um, they dig And so we found out, too, that they had dug underneath our front porch and made themselves a little hole that way. Um, And I think that's how they've been getting in. So we're kind of afraid to close the hole until we get all the skunks out. Otherwise, we're just going to have, you know, skunks living under our house and they won't have any escape.
0: Well, it's an acquired scent, right? I mean, you'll get used to it eventually.
1: Yeah, I think we're finally getting used to it. I mean, we may smell like a skunk, but I, you know, that's. That's other we, people's We issue, can't right? smell it. Yeah. So, I mean, we can't, we're so used to it now that we don't even know if we smell that bad.
0: <laughs> You're just like embodying today's topic because first you talk about acquired taste with green beans and now you have a skunk living under your house. I mean, we might as well reveal that like our topic today is, is stinky ferments and, and acquiring the taste for them or liking them. Or what is it that like? What is it that even makes people like stinky foods in general, but specifically many ferments are stinky. Thinky, at least to a certain extent. So, like you're just talking about your skunk, you're 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 already getting used to it. So, is that all it takes? Is just?
1: Yeah, I think it's just being, you know, disposed not disposed of it, but um, being around it and getting. I think it's just getting used to it. I think at first, sometimes you don't like it. It's an acquired taste, and then you eventually learn to be okay with it, and then eventually you learn to love it. Same thing with. Um, it, with um certain foods that you probably didn't like when you were a kid, you probably like a lot now when you're an adult. Like you probably didn't like coffee as a child, and it was probably too bitter. But as you get older, and the more you taste it, and the older you get, the more you like it.
0: Well, in in something like coffee, makes a little bit of sense since it is a a a drug of sorts. It's a stimulant. It's getting people uh, a feeling that they wouldn't otherwise have. I mean. Did you, I don't know if you did any research in regard to this, but uh, I just it's food in general, I guess, does have reward, whether or not it's something that makes a person feel different or whatnot. But like some of these really stinky ferments are, um, you know, a lot of them involve fish. So, I mean, we can throw out fish sauce or, or your favorite kimchi. I mean, you don't even necessarily like kimchi that much. It's it's kind of a stinky thing is the stinky factor of kimchi anything to do with what you don't like about kimchi or is it really just the lack of sourness and, and other aspects of it?
1: It's more of the lack of sourness. I okay. don't think that bother the smell factor doesn't really bother me. Um, there are things that I really enjoy, um, that other people think are stinky when it comes to fermentation. I love the smell of, um, brewers when they're making their wort. I, th- I mean, that's not the fermentation part of it, but I just love that smell. It smells like oatmeal. um, And that to me has a connection of um, when I was in grad school, I my office was right above the um, the pilot plant where they brewed a lot of beer um, for experiments. And so to me, that smell just reminds me of like grad school and living in Oregon and all of these really like soft, fuzzy feelings, whereas other things, um, other smells, you know, I can't think of one off the top of my head, but they they may smell really pleasant to other people, but I may have a negative connotation with them just because of the maybe emotion that I have attached to it. So maybe that's something that people associate stinky doesn't smell stinky to them, but they think of it more of as an emotional thing.
0: Well, and that does bring up the anything that I do understand about uh, f- of flavor in the perception of of aroma and taste in regard to that. It's it's it is a very emotional and psychological and it, it involves our memory. It involves our, our past experiences. It involves so much that it's hard not to be swayed in one direction or another. And it almost brings up the question of can any of us, we can sort of agree on what things taste like, or we can kind of a, a generally agree on most people will agree that a lot of the stinky foods that we're going to go over today are stinky. They do smell, but that. Certain people just still love the flavors and they maybe get used to it, but they can still acknowledge that it smells. But in general, I just don't think that we that any of us with all like eating anything is almost a amalgamation of our entire existence. It's like everything that we have experienced goes into every bite that we pay attention to, at least. And so none of us can really experience exactly the same thing, it would seem. But that might be a little over exaggerating it, but it's gotta be something. I mean, as to why some people can love some of these these foods that will make someone else gag and vomit.
1: Yeah, it's a really interesting thing. I think a lot of it has to do with um just your emotional connection to the food. Um, I mean, there's a lot of things that I mean, I've even said at the beginning of this episode that I really enjoy like very soggy green beans, whereas yeah. something you don't really care for that, and but to me, that's also an an emotional thing that connects me to my childhood and just makes gives me that warm buzzy feeling of being at home in my parents' house and sitting down with the family and having dinner so I think i mean stinkiness aside I think a lot of it is just emotionally uh, an emotional drive for food. I think you just kind of forget that it smells bad or you don't even notice it. Some people, I mean, maybe some, you just are so used to the smell and that's just what it's associated. That smells is associated with that food in which to you tastes fantastic because it has this sensorial emotion to it.
0: It's smell and taste and flavor. are So weird. I mean, it is, it is weird how something that is arguably kind of gross, disgusting, maybe smells very similar to other things that are rotten or otherwise that people start to love. And I mean, one, one example would be if, if a person grows up in, at least in Northern Sweden, but in Sweden in general, they might really like Sir which uh, I episode 16 on fish sauce that I talked about that then. And, and, uh, I've watched some YouTube videos of people trying to eat this stuff that didn't grow up with Sir Strombling, which is a, a herring that's fermented in barrels for a couple of months and then put into tin cans for up to another year. And uh, there's there's other slightly variations of that traditionally, but that's pretty much how it's done now because I don't know how many... I don't know if that's really a ferment that people are doing at home anymore. I think it has been industrialized and maybe for good reason because otherwise I don't know how a person's house wouldn't just reek. And that's another thing. I mean, this is a food that people generally are eating outside because... Like the, otherwise that stench is just going to be there for a long time. I mean, the, the smell of rotten eggs and vinegar and, and rancid butter, those aren't the kind of things that I want lingering in my house, but maybe, maybe if I was outside and had mixed with fresh air and I wasn't just, just inhaling that, maybe it would be good if it did remind me of warm, fuzzy things as a child growing up in Sweden, but I wasn't a child growing up in Sweden. So to me, it, it does seem really gross, but I really want to try it. But it's hard to get because it's hard to get sent through the mail because there is actually some danger of, of bulging pressure from the, the cans. And, and, and have you ever tried uh, f- fermented herring?
1: No, I haven't. But um, the fact that it smells like vinegar really intrigues me. Uh, I don't know if I could do it. See, I'm telling you, I love vinegar. It's I don't know what it is. It's just like that acidity. The I mean, I think I mean vinegar makes things crisp. Um, sometimes, but I don't think I could do the rotten eggs. I've smelled rotten, rotten eggs. And I just, that is a smell I can't handle very well, but the vinegar part, if it's mostly vinegar, I I bet I would like it.
0: Yeah. I don't know. i I really want to try it, but I've just, Oh, it's some nasty stuff watching people do it. You can actually see, I'll put it in the show notes. There's one of Harold McGee, uh, that is him, uh, Harold McGee, the, on science and cooking book or whatever that book is called. But uh, I mean, an excellent book, sorry, not trying to blow off the title of that, but I can't think of it right now, but it's uh, a video of him trying it with a student, I think, or something like that. I haven't watched it for quite a few months, but uh, it's interesting watching people trying to digest something and get over their gag reflexes because like you're talking about, I mean, we can desensitize to it, but Oh, rotten eggs are just seeing that's something that like, as soon as you said, rotten eggs, I said it, but I didn't think of it until you said it was Like I've only, I think I've only had it happen once or twice, but it's so disappointing if I'm baking something and I don't do, I mean, I think it's recommended to break eggs in a separate bowl, partly maybe for this reason, for the one in a million chance or one in a thousand, whatever it is that a person is going to crack an egg into whatever is being mixed up and it happens to be rotten. And that's, that's what I think of when I think rotten eggs, it's like, oh, that's just so disappointing. I'm, I'm all happy. I'm making some baked goods for uh, myself or family or whatnot. I don't even remember. All I remember is a rotten egg all of a sudden in, in the bowl. So for me, I don't know, rotten eggs. I haven't really, I mean, I kind of know that sulfur smell, but I haven't smelled a rotten egg since, since that one or two experiences. So for me, it's, it's very disappointing. So maybe I would think of that. And then I would, I would despise Sir Stromling just on that instance. I don't know.
1: Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I just love the taste of vinegar, but I also love, I mean, I think it would, I'm going to throw it out there. I think this might actually be really good on like some salting crackers um, and just add even some more salt on top of the vinegar. And I think it, like salt, I love salt and vinegar potato chips. So this might be right down my alley of something I really like. Um,
0: so note any listener that has access to Surstromming and can get it um smuggled into the States or, or, or try mailing it or, or is it interested, uh, get in contact with us because Allison wants to try it. I mean, I want to try it too, but, uh, you know, it's, it's one of those things where, like, again, I've seen videos of people doing it and sometimes it's, it's done as entertainment because it is kind of gross to watch someone trying to eat something that is gross to them. And I don't know what that, that is that, that is popular for people to, to watch. Like, I don't want to try it.
1: I think it's kind of the fear factor thing. Um, Remember that? Is that show still on TV? I don't know,
0: but yeah, I I know.
1: Yeah, but they always make you eat kind of strange stuff. And I think it's just more of I dare you to do it. And then you get some sort of rile and entertainment. But I mean, and sometimes it's entertaining to watch other people try things that, you know, they don't like. (laughs)
0: Yeah. I mean, there's there. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, well, it's kind of, kind of gross too. Like one of these Sir Stroming videos I watched, I'm not going to put that one in the link, just there's a a little bit more inappropriate, but like some of their, their comments on it or whatnot, but it was, you know, it's, it is something that, that has many, many sense beyond uh or memories of things other than rotten eggs or vinegar or rancid butter. I mean, there's, there's, there's even grosser things that someone could associate something like year old fermented, herring with. So, I mean, it's, it's one of those things. Yeah. It's, it's kind of gross. It's kind of interesting. I want to try it not to make fun of it or to, to really be grossed out by it. I really want to try some of these things and then try them again. I guess that's what it really comes down to is not just try it once, but try it multiple times to build up the, I don't like to say tolerance, but like, I guess, or I guess maybe more so if I don't like it the first time, I mean, make sure it's a, this is, this is my off the the cuff uh, way of thinking of, of how I should try some of these, these stinky things that I haven't tried would be to first do a very, uh, very neutral experience. The first time trying it, you know, make it, make sure there's nothing, you know, emotional or sensational or anything going on. Make it very just nondescript, non memorable minus the actual tasting. And if it tastes horrible, then move on to step two. If it tastes great, then I fell in love with the new food. But if it, if it tastes horrible. Then the next time needs to be just an entire sensational event, like a whole day of amazingness surrounding the stinky food and see if I can create the, uh, the sense memories that would be required to fall in love with it and, and, and want to eat it regularly. So that's, that's my setup now. I think that I'll, I'll try eventually if I ever get a hold of some of these things.
1: Yeah, I think that's a really good approach because I think it is one of those things it's um if you don't like it the first time try try again um and i think i mean there's a lot of stuff i didn't like when i was little that i really like now and so i think and i know what i like and this you know sistrami has vinegar or it smells like vinegar it doesn't have vinegar in it but just that i know i like that and so i think i might like this as well um and but it'd be worth it'd be worth trying
0: so now the question is do you have any positive experience with maggots? I don't. Okay. I so, don't. <laughs> well, well, then, so then uh, Kasu Marzu might be something that you're not exactly excited to try, or maybe it would be. Maybe you're still open to this one as well. It's kind of a rotten cheese that's left out to age. Well, it's left out to catch flies that will lay their larvae in there and then uh, the larvae hatch and there's maggots that digest and break down the cheese. So it's kind of a little bit of a softer cheese. Does that sound good?
1: No, but my question and what I think drives a lot of these strange fermented foods is why would anyone think of if it smells slightly off, if it looks a little off and it obviously looks like there are insects inside of it, what drives people to even try Try it. To me, I think I I mean, I'm not an adventurous person when it comes to certain foods, but I think I would see that and be like, you know what, I think that's just going to go in the trash.
0: See, and it depends on context, I guess. And I don't know about the history of this one. I know that it's been going on. Uh, it's it, it has been made for quite a period of time. And I mean, there's issues with this one with uh, regard to the EU Uh, coming in and and making it illegal and people would still be getting it on the black market. They wanted it that much. And so uh, there's a chance that it may, it, it seems ambiguous still. It may or may not be legal at this point and considered under the umbrella of traditional foods that don't have to follow regular health department requirements. But like, so this one's been going on at least long enough to be considered traditional legally or illegally, but sometimes some of these ferments. I'm sure at some point humans had to acquire the taste and and we just happened to uh, we as in all the people that are alive today happen to be the offspring of uh, generations of people that that lean towards certain things or or were OK with certain kinds of foods in order to survive. So it could have been a survival thing. I mean, maybe the first person that saw this maggot cheese was like, oh, my gosh, I don't have any food and all of our cheese has maggots in it now. So I'm going to eat it. And oh, it happens to actually be delicious. Maybe that was what happened. But nowadays it seems like it's more that fear factor thing. Like you're talking about, like even if people aren't watching it on video or doing it, I mean, some of it is that excitement of, I mean, these things can jump up to six inches um, off the cheese. So people will like cover their, their eyes while they're, they're taking bites of it. That seems a little bit more sensational than, than, but maybe, but again, I don't know. This one's a little, I, I don't know how smelly this one is. It's just more of that. Like, decay and rot and disgust. Um, It's
1: it's more of the strange factor like, oh, that is an interesting cheese that I've never heard of. And what possessed people to even think that it was edible just because there are maggots growing on it.
0: But I I have to say, I would try this cheese because the first time I heard about this cheese, I think was in Sander Katz's book, The, uh, The Revolution Will Not Be Microwaved like his second book or something like that. I think it was actually the first book that I ever read and then got in. Maybe that's how I got into fermentation and reading his wild fermentation. Anyway, without uh, trying to go back and down memory lane that I remember reading in that book and how it was, I was just kind of disappointed in the the context of what was being written about how it was at that point illegal. And I just thought that that was kind of sad thinking about some kind of tradition for whatever reason that people appreciate or, or, or that there's connoisseurs of, uh, of this form of mega cheese that they would, it would be then deemed illegal, even though it's been done for so long. And, and that just, to me that, that strikes a chord in, in regard to, it's like, I think that like for some of these things, obviously most people aren't even going to want to eat it. And if people do choose to eat it, they're like going so far as to like decide to do it, that the regulation just seems a little overboard to me. It's like, it's a little overkill. It's like if, if someone wants to risk whatever there is to risk in it, if nothing else, just gag reflex, then why not let them risk it? I mean, I I feel like that's like a little too controlling of food and I I like more freedom with my food. So for me, I think maybe I would have that same emotional connection to this one, having read it so many years back that I might have more of a draw to it. I don't know.
1: Sure. I think, I mean, that's an interesting way to look at it. Um, just because it is, yeah, there is a lot of food regulation and this is kind of a strict, I mean, this is pretty strict rule regulations and there's a lot of other foods too. that um, in the U.S. There's all sorts of standards Um, when it comes to really like how many insects can be found into in a food product that makes it to the shelves. This isn't fermented foods. This is just food that we eat in general. Um, I want to say the FDA even says to when you're when you buy peanut butter, there can only be out of so many cases, maybe a thousand jars They can only find like two grasshopper legs or something like that. But that's more of a food safety standardization thing. This is this is, you know, sounds like a luxury item that's probably made in a very small quantity in a house that probably it's I think it's under different rules and regulations. So it's just funny how um, this is so different that they want to have all of these things in it. All of these
0: maggots yeah I guess this would be a good reason to uh, DIY ferment your own foods I mean because this one is just leaving out uh pecorino cheese I don't know if this fly the um the peophilia Kci is is available uh worldwide but if it is hey that's a good reason um, to ferment at home because you can't really get this maggot cheese very often other places so but whether or not you trust yourself to do something like maggot cheeses I don't I don't know but I'm assuming a maggot's a maggot. Could you eat any maggot? I don't know.
1: know. That's a good question. I mean, I would think that this type of maggot probably what the driving force to this cheese is probably the, again, like the texture and the way the taste of it more so than it's not a stinky uh, fermentation. But I'm assuming different maggots produce different types of chemicals that make different types of textures and flavors. So maybe it is very specific to this type of fly.
0: I, guess, I don't know. Has well, anyone
1: ever done research on it?
0: Yeah, we'll have to we'll have to follow up on on that one in in the future, and uh, because it's 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 an interesting one, and we've got plenty of other interesting ones too. So I guess moving on, uh, we have uh, kivak is how I would say that. It's an Inuit delicacy in from Greenland, and it is the auk bird, a u k. So I could again be mispronouncing that, but it's a it's it's a bird where they take a bunch of these relatively small birds and stuff them into a seal blubber and then ferment it for three to 18 months. It's supposed to be really stinky.
1: Oh, I bet. Um, I'm sure that smells, um, very interesting and different than any other type of fermentation, but, um, isn't this more so for, um, survival survival, um, for long winters, um, in Greenland. It seems like a lot of these other foods were just, they're, just foods that are, just happen to be stinky, but this seems to be more of a food for survival and it just turns out to be stinky.
0: Yeah. This would be an interesting one to look into further. Is it, is it a delicacy or is it just a, a survival food that again, people have the Inuit people in in Greenland that still are doing this have grown up with these kind of associated memories. So maybe they still like it, but it's not like a it's not something that's swooned over and talked all romantically about and, and all these amazing things. It's maybe it's not in the the level of delicacy. Maybe it just really is like you're saying, I mean, it gets kind of cold in Greenland for a large period of time where it gets dangerous to hunt. It gets, there's, there's not much that a person can, can do out on, on the ice at, at certain periods. And so what do you do except for take a, a, an auk bird and, and stuff it in a seal blubber and, it, it at least provides sustenance for people. And sure, I would eat something stinky. If I was, if I was in need of food, I don't, I don't think I would uh, turn down some, uh, some kvyak.
1: No, I don't think, I mean, if I was hungry enough, I would eat it. Um, and, but it's, it's kind of funny that this food too, it doesn't seem as if it's, um, available at your local grocery store. This seems like one of those traditional foods that you pass down from, like you learn from your grandmother and then, Um, you teach your kids how to do it and their kids. And it's a, it's, is it more of a a cultural, also a cultural food that's handed down?
0: Yeah. It seems like a more, um, a much more traditional kind of almost in that, um, not tribal, but in in that kind of sense of it's, it's, it's a very much so in, uh, indigenous kind of food and, uh, it's gotta be, I mean, well, I do like the way Gizmodo, uh, there, I put an article in there from Gizmodo only because of their title and it was just, they were calling it the turducken from hell stuffed stuff in whale blubber turducken from hell. I could see that, but it I can see that, you know, it's, uh, yeah, it's, I don't think that they have that stuff in the grocery store, but I could be wrong. And it probably is worth noting in case that anyone is wanting to ferment birds in whale blubber that, um, it's probably good to find someone that has done this before go to Greenland, go somewhere else that they do something similar and learn the traditional way, because this is, this is one of the few cases of fermentation that are, that, that a person can find in the literature regarding Clostridium botulinum. And it's say doing these traditional ferments in ways that aren't traditional, say like taking some, uh, I think it's beaver tail and then the auk, uh, the bird have, have, have also been, you know, skip some important steps, like putting it in whale blubber and keeping it, buried underground instead people have done things i can't remember completely off the top of my head but like put it fermenting them in plastic on a kitchen counter different things way different environments way not safe in the same way and some people have either died or uh, come very close with clostridium botulinum because of it because some of these things are done a very specific way how people came up with how to do it without dying maybe it took a few people dying in order to figure it out but uh when food is a necessity. I mean, it, I guess it's worth the sacrifice of a, I mean, not worth it, but like, I mean, people have got to try to eat something and and if it doesn't work one way, they're obviously going to try and do it a different way and then stick with that way. So this is one probably not to try at home until you get some extra, extra learning study. Yeah.
1: Maybe just go to Greenland and just try it there. And then if you like it, find out how they do it, get, find out their secret, their little twists and turns.
0: Yeah. I, I want to know the secret of how they get so many little birds. I mean, I think traditionally it's something like 400 birds stuffed into whale blubber
1: um, oh, or,
0: or seal blubber. And, and these things are small. They, the only thing that's kind of sad is I kind of like penguins and they look like little baby penguins, but uh, I mean, not baby, like they're smaller than that, but they just, they're, they're kind of cute, but Hey, you got to eat, got to live, I guess. So, I mean, pigs are cute too. So, I uh, but I like bacon. So.
1: True. I wonder yeah, I wonder how they catch so many birds because then they I mean, you probably can't hold on to a 100 birds um and wait for another another 300. It seems as if you kind of have to do it all at once just to make just because the fermentation is so specific and so that you don't mess it up and maybe like the time frame and all that kind of stuff might be inter- interfere with the quantity too.
0: Hopefully we have an Inuit listener that can tell us more about this because I would be very fascinated.
1: Yeah. Um, but the, but moving on to a different type of fermentation, um, stinky tofu, have you ever tried stinky tofu?
0: I have not, but I want to, and it's something that is within my realm of being able to make at home. So I will try it at some point. What do you know about stinky tofu though?
1: Um, I just know that it is tofu that is in a, that's fermented. It's tofu that's then again, fermented in a special type of brine. Um, and it's, isn't it the brine that's very stinky? And that's what makes it stinky.
0: Well, I think when like you have things like fermented milk, vegetables and meat and sometimes some seafood, dried seafood thrown in there, I could see that being kind of stinky to begin with. Yeah. But and then Um, being fermented for anywhere from a week to um, to several months. Yeah, you can get something. But that's that's one thing where it's like tofu. I'm sure you got got more on the science side of it. But like tofu being something that's generally not fermented. Well, hey, you can make it a fermented item if you want, and it probably makes it even if it stinks it's got to taste better than to- i'm not a tofu person so because it's a little too boring um maybe that's why i'm drawn to fermented things because it's kind of a little bit more complex flavor profiles but tofu by itself not so much but now i'm going to have to try some stinky tofu
1: yeah well i mean tofu is kind of bland but you have to jazz it up with like sauces and grilling it and kind of have to get a little creative um we, we use it sometimes in our house as a, an alternative to meat. Um, we, we're not vegetarians or anything, but just sometimes it's something different. Um, uh, and sometimes we mix it with different types of sauces or um, spices to make sauces to put into lasagnas and all kinds of stuff, just to kind of add some different kinds of textures and whatnot. But um, when I was doing some research on this stinky topic... Um, It kind of brought on this scientist in me to try to figure out why all these things are stinky. There has to be some sort of common denominator as to what makes a food stinky. Um, And in the research, and it's more of a general question because I never found a definite answer, but um, it seems as if all of these things are characteristic by they have what's called biogenic amines, which are um, nitrogenous compounds. So they're basically, um, nitrogen and amino acids that, um, can be broken apart into smaller amino, amino acids, um, and made into all sorts of different types of nitrogen based compounds. Um, some of these things we probably have heard of before, like histamine, histamine, um, that's something that people are usually, um, allergic to, um, I think in the air, Um, But there's other things like putrazine. And I mean, the word itself sounds like putrid. Um, And in the research I found, too, is that they are putrid smells. Um, And stinky tofu has one of those, has a lot of putrazine in the tofu brine, which I found was really interesting. And some of these other foods like the um, Quebec also has a lot of putrazine in the food itself.
0: And as far as I understand, these kind of uh, I'm not familiar with putrazine, but putrefaction, that's that rotting smell is something that is generally a good thing that humans have avoided because it means that we're not eating things that are dangerous. And even though some of these things like stinky tofu don't happen to be dangerous, they still have those same same scents. So it's it's kind of like how do you stick a bunch of birds into seal blubber and figure out that that works and it's safe to do? Um, how do people figure out? I mean, is it just go back to that whole like I'm hungry I'm starving kind of thing. I need to eat something. And so this is, this is the, the lesser of two evils. It might smell like it's dead and rotting, but it's uh it's just putrazine as opposed to like something contaminated.
1: Sure. I think that's probably one of the driving factors. Um, I mean, I think our senses are pretty good at telling us what's right and what's wrong. And I think that also just through natural selection and, um, you know, genetics and all that kind of stuff, I think that we as humans have been very good at figuring out like, okay, this smells pretty bad, but for some reason I'm going to try it because it might be pretty good versus, okay, this smells really bad. It doesn't look good. Um, I'm just going to throw it away. I'm not even going to touch the stuff. So I I don't know. It could kind of go both ways. I know though that, I mean, this is kind of not necessarily way off topic, but I know that, um, Native Americans when they weren't sure if they could eat something, they watched to see if other animals would eat them like birds would, they would see what kind of berries birds would eat. And then if the birds ate it, then they'd be like, okay, it must be okay to eat. So maybe that's kind of how they figured out that this was okay to eat versus not okay.
0: But even that sometimes doesn't work. Like at least I know from, uh, from interest in, in mushrooms and, and foraging for mushrooms, it's not necessarily a sign just because there's animal nibbles out of it that it's edible for, uh, for a human. And so that's sometimes people have gotten sick from, or, or generally not, not dying. But I mean, it's like, even that isn't like a perfect thing. So, I mean, some people have probably taken one from the team and just, you know, people learn through watching that, uh, that Bob didn't quite survive eating that berry, even though those, uh, mice were so, we're not gonna eat that berry anymore, whether or not it was actually that berry or the rotting uh, tofu that Bob ate the night before. Um
1: maybe it's more of just the fear factor thing that has that the cavemen were doing a long time ago, where everyone dared Bob to do it just to see if he would. And then they found out that it didn't do so he didn't end up in a good situation. So they're like, you know what, we're we're okay with this. We're not gonna eat any fermented auk whale turduka.
0: Wow. Do I, do I get some options on the, on the, the rights, uh, for this too, since we're, it's coming out of our discussion right now. If you start a caveman fear factor, um, television show, you know, can I be a part of that? I I think that'd be a good show.
1: Oh yeah. I I think that'd be very entertaining.
0: (laughs) That's that maybe, maybe you're right though. I mean, maybe that like it's, 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 maybe some of it's part dare. I mean, uh, we dare you to try any of these fermented foods here, uh, listeners as well. And, and, you know, it's a part dare part, just, uh, luck of the draw, um, part starvation, part necessity, probably a lot of different things that have brought these into existence. Now, the question also comes up, I would think that, well, yeah, you're, you're, you know, food science looking at these kind of things. Why aren't, why isn't like, maybe, maybe these are the, the, the next like putrazine is the next big thing uh for additives or maybe it already is being added to food in in small enough doses because people know that humans will just go crazy over something if it's in a in a it maybe maybe not enough of a dose to make it noticeable uh but maybe putrazine is is one of those uh natural additives uh or natural ingredients or however it's worded at the end of of package labels where they don't really have to tell you what it is because it's in small enough amount do you think they might be adding putrescine to stuff because people like it? They like the nasty rotting smell, but they just don't realize it.
1: Um, unfortunately, I don't think so. It's a good thought. I oh. think I just I mean, it's it's good way of thinking about it, but I don't think that food scientists are adding these types of biogenic amines because um, not only do they produce these really kind of rancid, stinky smells sometimes, but um, some people are kind of allergic to biogenic amines. Um, I think again, histi- histamine is one of those examples, um, that people associate with uh red wine headache. Um, oh, okay. so I think, so I think some of them do have adverse effects on a, on a human, um, and to give you headaches or kind of make you not feel so great. Um, because just by nature of how they work in the body, um, So I don't think food scientists are adding them, but I think it's one of those things that they naturally are produced and that's what causes them to be stinky. And that's what, and then the stinkiness is what's driving people to eat them or try them or dare people to fear factor your friends and all kinds of stuff. So I don't think we'll be seeing that in the marketplace anytime soon, but it's a good thought.
0: I'm just going to assume that it's proprietary information that food scientists wouldn't be sharing with us anyway. And that's, that's the story I'm going to write. Future seed—it's the next big thing, and if food scientists aren't doing it now, if you're listening to the show, you might want to start experimenting with it on small enough doses that are imperceptible and and safe. Maybe, I mean, they're adding all—I mean, there's got to be all kinds of stuff being added into things proprietarily. Really. So, I mean, hey, give give it a shot. Yeah, um,
1: natural additives is kind of a general, very general, general wording wor- verbage in the food industry. So it could mean anything. Maybe they are, and we just don't know it. And They can put natural flavoring on the on the back of the label.
0: We won't know. It's okay. We won't know. It's it's exciting. I mean, the 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 stinky tofu. uh, Looking looking at that, I just saw so many notes too about it being harmfulness potentially or potentially harmful uh, from a toxicological standpoint if it is an extended fermentation, Um, and I wonder if that's why there was a LA article that I had looked at where you can get stinky tofu at certain places in uh, generally Taiwanese restaurants, I'm assuming in in LA, but that the health department only allows three days of fermentation as opposed to the traditional week to several months. Uh, And maybe it's based on those kind of toxicological uh, things, but, but to a certain extent it's like, it may be harmful. Um, So it doesn't sound like it's consistent or that it may be harmful for some people, or it may be an imperceptible harm. That is an added kind of thing as in, if you eat stinky tofu the rest of your life, you're going to shave off a, a couple years Maybe that's worth it to people. I don't know. It sure, seems- And
1: and a lot of these biogenic amines are things that you're predisposed to throughout your life. Like some people, um, I mean, I don't know much about allergies, but um, I, I've i never had allergies. And I think that that's because I lived in a place where there was a lot of hay and hay and peep. And I so I was, I was never around or I was predisposed to it. So it never affected me and it probably won't ever affect me. But maybe it's also one of those things, too, like stinky tofu may not be good for in large quantities for, say, me, because I've never had it versus someone in in China who's probably had it all their life and they're predisposed to it. So it doesn't have any sort of effect on them.
0: We'll follow up if we ever find anyone that has never had stinky tofu and decides to uh, eat it for an extended period of time.
1: Yeah. But speaking of someone eating extended, eating something for an extended period of time. Um, you had sent me an article earlier this week regarding a man who is only going to eat fermented foods for an entire year.
0: Yeah. And when I first saw it, you know, I was just kind of thinking, okay, well, and I think it probably is a little bit in the vein of like whoever, what uh, documentary director ate a bunch of uh, McDonald's for however long, I don't know if he ate it for a year or whatnot, but uh super Size me or whatever that was. And Mm -hmm. other aspects it made me also think of a a journalist that didn't uh or, or i think is currently in his year of not using the internet or maybe it was only a month i don't know i don't remember but you know like thinking about these kind of things they're they're part stunt part dare, almost feeling to a certain extent back going back into that vein but it's you know looking at it more it's what can be learned from this not only from the well not what not only what can uh Education is, is available and awareness can be brought to how many different kinds of fermented foods there are and how easy it probably is to live off of them for a year and only eat fermented foods. But also, you know, there, there, there's, there's the, the positive aspects of just learning and doing a deep dive into something like fermented foods. And so, you know, it's it, it, at first I thought maybe, ah uh, maybe just a little superficial. But when I read the whole blog, which I'll put in the show notes, uh, that it's might be actually kind of cool.
1: Yeah, I think it's a really interesting idea. Um, I would like to know if he is going to be making all of these fermented foods himself or if or as much as he can, or if it's going to if he's going to take advantage of what's at the grocery store and kind of know more of like his game plan, I guess, his project idea in depth. I think that would be really interesting. But I also think it'd be really interesting to get maybe a comparison of um, his gut bacteria before he started this. And then again, when he's all done with it and see if there's any sort of change um, and see if there is maybe if he feels better, if he, if there is some sort of, I mean, granted it, it's just this one person and it's for a very long time, but if um, maybe there is a slight correlation between fermented foods and health and digestive health.
0: Yeah. I mean, even just, even just change would be interesting whether or not, like and, and if, if there's a change in the microbiome will it also be lasting because uh, even if in a year, if, if he goes back to a certain kind of diet, would it, would it go back um, kind of like some fecal transplants work for even sometimes years at a time. And then a person will have to get a little up dose of more fecal inoculation and they'll, they'll be able to, you know, to, to go on. But like, if he, if he goes back to a, a regular diet, would that make it so that he, it's, Um, it sticks or not. And I, he is, he has a book deal for this. So this is going to be turned into a book and he's starting the, 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 the fermentation. I I mean, it's not a diet or fast, but like the ferment eating only fermented foods starts on January 1st of 2014. And I think if I remember correct, I don't have the blog post in front of me. I think the book is uh, scheduled to be published in 2016. So there would be the chance to do some kind of like follow-up as well it would, I would think of, uh, before the book is completely out as into like, what's that, if he's able to do a before and after of the, of his, his gut bacteria, then what would it be a year later of not having only eaten fermented foods? Or maybe he's going to love fermented foods so much and never go back to eating anything else because he, he did say Oreos, um, were, uh, something he is enjoys. So that's definitely not fermented as far as I know, could be proprietary maybe- information.
1: Yeah. Maybe he could make some fermented Oreos or figure out some sort of way to create fermented Oreos. Ooh, that'd be a really good project actually.
0: Being a non Oreo or not being an Oreo fan, that sounds really gross to me, but, uh, if it, if it inspires (laughs) you, then definitely, definitely give it a try.
1: I don't think I've had an Oreo since I was like 12, but I do when I read that too. And I thought, Ooh, double stuff Oreos. That sounds good. (laughs) But I'm sure you can make it somehow into some sort of delicious fermented food. Yeah, there had to be a little creative.
0: Yeah, and it's gonna. It'll be interesting to see. Uh, uh, his name is Derek Dillinger, uh, and uh, he's in in New York. And um, it's the the beer flavored blog. And before I'd seen this come up in my newsfeed, I had seen that someone under beer flavored at beer flavored on Twitter had said. You know that they'd listen to all the episodes except for the fecal transplant one, which I think he should listen to if he listens to this episode, then uh, definitely listen to it because it's very fascinating, especially with your mention, Allison, of the microbiome and, you know, testing before and after. That's some kind of interesting stuff. And I uh, so he's at least doing his homework, too. So that's part, you know, helps that he's listening to firm up. So he's going to be okay for this year and it'll be interesting. Maybe we can get him on at some point.
1: Yeah, I think that'd be great. I think he'd be a really interesting person to talk about, even even besides the the year of fermented foods. I mean, it seems like on his blog, too, that he talks a lot about homebrew recipes. And um, a lot of his interest is in um, sour beers, which, again, I'm not a big I love sour foods, but I don't like sour beer. Um,
0: there's something something wrong, something with, wrong
1: with me. There's something wrong with me. But I mean, I, I, I'm really interested in the microbiology behind sour beers because it's a lot of, it's, it's like sourdough. There's a whole bunch of stuff inside of sour beer that makes it taste the way it does. And um, so I'd like to talk to him about it in detail. So maybe we can have him sometime on the show.
0: Yeah. I think that that would be a good, a good idea. And, and, and that just is a good point to bring up too, that uh, we're not doing as many interviews as we were going through kind of a little interim of, of doing, or, or at least I was kind of in the interim between hosts and um we're still open to doing it and and you know uh, having interviews so if, if you know anyone that would if you are someone that would want to be on or or know someone that would be that you would like to hear on we can definitely try and get them get them on and and do some interviews get some get some real world people other than just uh you and me talking about us,
1: us talking <laughs>
0: but uh the stinky stuff is i i the thing that surprises me is that i haven't tried many of these uh ferments i i would think that like with an interest in fermentation that i would have really pushed a little harder to find some of these things and and a little closer to home limburger cheese supposedly there's only one place in the world that's or not in the world in in the united states that still makes limburger cheese are you familiar with limburger
1: i i am familiar i've never had it but i just can't imagine it being stinkier than uh like rockefort cheese that to me is like the stinkiest cheese
0: i've ever seen me that's not stinky no. at all
1: Really? I think it is very stinky.
0: No, that's not like that's there's nothing wrong with that. But Limburger, I mean, really something uh, going back to our our previous episode where we talked about human cheese. I mean, this is using bacteria. They smear it on its foul smelling bacteria, uh, brevetibacterium linens that is uh, also partially responsible for uh, for human foot odor. I mean, come on. I mean, do you really want foot odor bacteria smeared all over? your, uh, your cheese to make it age quicker. You're going to say that that couldn't possibly smell worse than roquefort.
1: Okay. That probably does smell pretty foul. Um, I've smelled a lot of, not that I go around smelling people's feet, but I have no, I'm very familiar with that smell and it is pretty, pretty rank.
0: I think that I'm going to have to try this cheese relatively soon. I've I've kept off from doing it because some off cheeses do kind of like there's another one that's kind of an American classic or whatnot. American brick cheese. Are you familiar with that?
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I have. I've had that before, actually. Do you like it? It's OK. Um.
0: There's something weird, like almost sauerkrauty, weird, ammonia-ish kind of. Like something's just weird about it. And just I, if I'm in the right mood, I can take a few bites, but especially I can't do the, the rinder. I don't even know if it's actually a, a, a rinder, but at least the outside edge, I can't, I can't do it.
1: I think it's just, I'm like you, it just kind of depends, but it doesn't bother me as much as Rockford cheese. I think I, I can't do that cheese. Haven't tried Limburger cheese, but maybe, maybe I'll try it. I'll have a whole bunch of the herring, the, the herring that we were talking about earlier. What's the name of that? again. Oh, sure. But I think I'll, yes. I'll have that. And then I'll have some Lindburger cheese and I'll just have a party in my backyard.
0: Yeah. See emphasis on backyard. These are not things to try for the first time inside the home, because especially if you don't like them, you're going to be living with it for a little while. Um, with the sense that could smell like skunk maybe.
1: Well, I mean, I guess we do have skunks in our house, so it doesn't really matter. I mean, our house already kind of smells skunky, so maybe, maybe it'll make our house smell more, more fragrant and potpourri like maybe it's a good thing
0: (laughs) or maybe some of these stinky foods, you just have to figure out the right one. So I think your goal is to get every single stinky food that we're talking about uh, today and, and bring them into your house, Put make sure they're in whatever room you said that the the skunks are underneath of Uh, uh, maybe the skunks will be deterred because there's something even nastier smelling than them that is spraying something all over. And they're just going to be like, we're out of here because this is not our our turf anymore.
1: Yeah. Maybe some something else stinkier moved in. Huh? Now I'll have to try that. That might be the, the solution to our problem. I mean, if it keeps going on, we're going to have to, someone's going to have to get under the house and figure out where these skunks are, what these skunks are doing and how many are down there. Because sometimes it's like, are there more than just two skunks? We know there's two for sure, just because we can hear them talking. From one end, like one corner of the bedroom to the other corner of the bedroom. And then the dog just goes back and forth. Um, and he can't, the dog can't figure out that there's something underneath the house. He just hears these noises and he walks up to the the sound and smells the floor. And then he hears the one skunk's response to the first skunk and walks back. And it's actually pretty amusing to see, but he's just so confused. He, he doesn't understand it.
0: What do they sound like? Can you do a reenactment of, of what they're, they're sounding like?
1: You know, actually they kind of smell, sound like, um, birds chirping. Oh. It's just like these really high pitched, um, baby bird chirps. And, oh. and the and the only, it, we were really confused that we didn't even know that that's what skunks sounded like because we were laying in bed one night and we heard these birds chirping and we looked at the clock and we we're like, it's 2am. Why are the birds up? This is really strange. <laughs> And then we heard the, then we smelled the skunk and we realized that that's them talking to each other.
0: Oh, talking to each other and spraying each other with sweet nothings. And mm, sounds good. Mm. I think, I think maybe you have a cute love little taps. family. <laughs> yeah. Love taps of <laughs> beautiful aromas and uh
1: happy mm. little pews underneath our house. And so we're just, we've been having, my husband's been having a skunk out. He um has been setting traps and stuff and um, putting on camo pants and camo camo hats and stuff and just walking around the house at night looking for them. Um, we, we read online that they don't like mothballs and they also do not like mace. So he went out and bought um, a big can of police grade mace and he's hoping that once they leave, he's going to spray around the house and they'll never come back. That's the plan. It's
0: the plan. I mean, uh, we'll just have to see if what, what you read on the internet actually works or if it's, uh. It only works for ones in certain geographical regions or something like that. Like maybe your skunks, they like mace.
1: Maybe. I you know, mean, they, they um, might
0: be, mace might be the stinky food scent for those skunks as something like Limburger cheeses to, to, to certain humans.
1: That's true. So I'll, I'll update everyone as soon as we catch those skunks, um, I'll let you know how we caught them and what works. Maybe, you know, mace might work, might not. There might be something else that we don't know of that'll yeah. make them go away. Limburger we hope cheese. So soon. Limburger cheese. We'll just take all this fermented stinky foods and put them um in our bedroom and just camp out and just wait for everyone to leave.
0: Hey, it sounds like a sounds like a plan. And you know, before it gets to be uh we should probably wrap up soon but like I I I think we should just list a few others and say yes or no if you've had it. Have you had nato?
1: No, but I want to try it.
0: I've I've had it. Um or I've made it. So I can't say that I've made it perfect. It was, I think maybe I let it go a little too long. I have that tendency of it's like, Oh, it's not strong enough yet. So let's make it stronger. But it had a very strong ammonia smell. I can deal with the sliminess because I like the, you know, ropiness almost slime snotty aspect of, of Vili yogurt. So, you know, I can, I can deal with the, the sliminess of, of the bacillus subtilis, but not that really, really off putting um, ammonia smell. And it's not really, a, it's not a full on taste, but like that retronasal experience
1: Mm hmm. I think I would like it just because, of, again, it's it is kind of slimy, but it, I don't know if I could do the ammonia smell, but I would get past that because it, in pictures I've seen of it, um, it it one looks really delicious and it just looks like, um, you know, beans and rice, like um, southern style red beans and rice. And I like that it's kind of saucy. So I know that doesn't taste that way, but I think it would be interesting to try to compare it to
0: that. I think that's one of those that mixing it with the condiments is probably a very important do eating it more traditional to uh, to the Japanese way. I put a YouTube video in there for like what to mix with it. I think that might help these. I didn't actually do that because I was just kind of off put by trying it plain. So maybe I shouldn't have tried it plain first. I shouldn't have made those negative associations with it. Um, So anyway, I have more natto starter, so I'm going to try it again sometime soon. What about fermented shark meat? Hakarl from Iceland.
1: Uh no, I haven't but um there there is a link um the bizarre bizarre food guy andrew Zimmerman or Zimmern he tries it and he says that it's not that bad um he said it's very uh not spongy um but it it's texturally um very appealing but he said it also kind of tastes a little bit like ammonia
0: this this fish ammonia and and or just ammonia of these really stinky things. I guess it's just the thing that some people are are okay with, or some people aren't. I mean, Korean skate fish, another ammonia-smelling one. Uh, Hong Gale. have you had that?
1: No, I haven't. A lot of these fermented foods, I've I've never had, but it's a lot of these. Uh, yeah, again, strange fermented fish.
0: Yes, another one would be Nara uh, Nara sushi, which would be almost kind of the the precursor to sushi because it's ferment uh, fish stuffed into rice cakes, as far as I understand. And mm. that one, I think I could, I, I'd be interested to try that.
1: I think that would be pretty good. I mean, I I like rice. I think it would probably go, I like sushi. I think it'd probably go pretty well with some natto.
0: Something about having a starch as a part of that ferment just makes it more welcoming to me. Yeah.
1: Um, it pro- Maybe it neutralizes some of that stinkiness too.
0: Yes. I would, I would be okay with that. But then there is a, there is one stinky one on this list. I mean, I guess kimchi we kind of had on our list, but not really, but fish sauce. I mean, that is one that is stinky and I do love that.
1: I, I do like fish sauce. Um, I, and I've used it for other things in just general cooking too. And even making, um, like, you know, mind style of pho where you have fish sauce in it. That's pretty good. I, I do like that.
0: Yeah. You know, there's something that like, that is one that I think is a lot easier for people to to get over the hurdle of, and maybe it's because it's a condiment. It's like full on condiment. It's full on liquid. It's not something that is, has much of people aren't experiencing texture along with taste. It's just an additive that pretty much mm-hmm. blends in for the most part too. It's not something that really stands out besides applying it to whatever it's being cooked in.
1: Right. And to me, it's kind of, it's more salty. It doesn't really, I mean, it smells a little fishy, but I'm okay with that. Cause it's not, overly fishy, um, but it also doesn't smell like what it tastes like. The smell doesn't, or it tastes doesn't correlate with the smell. Um, So that doesn't bother me. It's very salty.
0: I also wonder if that is, I mean, that's kind of the one that is the link to a a lot, a lot broader range of uh, Western descended humans. Whereas some of these are more, you know, uh, like Asian counterparts or, or certain, you know, like Iceland, Greenland areas that didn't necessarily have as much migration, uh, in certain areas or if they did, I mean, it's like, it's more like, you know, a lot of uh, European descendants coming over to the United States, uh, throughout history, somewhere along the lines, uh, Garum was a part of it too. I mean, uh, Roman times and, um, you know, well into, uh, even to a little bit still today. I mean, people fermenting fish, it's another fish sauce and used to be kind of the, the, the use as salt. Well, I kind of like fish sauce is used today, but I mean, it was, it was very much so a part of cultures worldwide at different points and it's kind of dwindled out now. But, uh, I, I wonder if we just innately have like an acceptance, a lot more people have acceptance of fish sauce because it's It's in, it's in more people's roots. That's my guess. Maybe.
1: Yeah, I'm sure that's, that's very true. Um,
0: Who knows how much genetic or, or other predisposition really does. Maybe it is all emotional. Maybe it is all experience. Maybe it's nurture versus nature and, and the nurture wins out. But either way, that's the, that's probably the one on this list again, I don't really count kimchi as being a stinky one. It just tastes too good. And maybe I've just created the emotional uh, links to that in such an amazing way. But, but fish sauce is one that anyone can go out uh, that and, and get that even most grocery stores versus, I mean, you don't even have to go to a specialty store necessarily, but that is one that people should get out and try and at least connect a little bit with the funk because, or, or start fermenting these things at home or just ferment more in general. Like I find Brussels sprouts are one that stink at a certain point and then they start to taste good eventually.
1: Yeah. I mean, Brussels sprouts and broccoli too. Broccoli. Um, but they're both kind of the, that stinky sulfur rotten egg smell. Um,
0: have you ever then, fermented broccoli?
1: No, I just know this. Like if you cook it in, um, uh, cook like on a stovetop, it smells kind of stinky and then it goes away. It's the same way with, with Brussels sprouts too, or you cook them in the oven. The, that sulfur dissipates. And, and I'm sure it's the same way with ferm- fermenting broccoli, but that would actually be pretty good. Fermented broccoli. Not that I think about it. I've never tr- thought about it or tried it.
0: Not quite in the same vein, but another one that at least looks similar, uh, fermented cauliflower that actually tastes amazing. I love fermented cauliflower mm. and, and it, I don't think it really smells too much along the process. Maybe a little. Um, I mean, again, some of these things are very mild compared to the things we've talked about today. Not everything yeah. is stinky like today.
1: Well, and uh, this, I know that, um, just fermentation in general does produce, I talked a little bit about it earlier with brewing beer. Um, this wasn't, this is the pre ferment fermentation part with the warp, but during fermentation, sometimes there are smells that the bacteria give off as a byproduct, but they're very volatile. And then at the end of the fermentation, they're not there. So it might be kind of stinky during the fermentation and your kitchen might smell a little funky. Um, you know, same way with like kimchi, it gives off a very distinct smell. Um, but I think when the fermentations are over and complete, they don't smell anything like that. It's pretty neutral. And in my mind, most of the ferments that I've done in my kitchen,
0: it's just, it's, it's the beautiful transformation of fermentation And then occasionally it still stinks after that and people still love it. So fermentation, I mean, you just got to don't knock it until you try it. So try all of these ferments, all these stinky ones. And anything else?
1: I think we kind of covered the stinky topic. I don't know if there's anything else, but if anyone has any comments or um, questions or they want to send us some stinky ferments,
0: get in contact with us and in
1: touch with us
0: can send them to email at podcast at firmup.com or on twitter at firmup facebook at firmup pinterest at firmup google plus it or google plus plus firmup you can find us all over the place or you can go and get the show notes for this episode at firmup.com slash podcast slash 43 and until next time firm up